This morning's scripture from the ninth chapter of Romans, the first five verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's profound writings, Father, that was breathed by your spirit. Lord, we pray that your spirit would intervene in this service this morning, that he would call these words to fall afresh on our hearts and minds. May we see them as never before. May you help us to understand your word that can be very complex at times. And Father, as for myself, I pray that you give me your words and that the words I speak be not mine. And may they be glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're back in Romans this morning after taking a couple weeks or a couple weeks pause to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When we last looked at this book, it was actually the introduction a few weeks ago of Romans 9. And we're looking at the same five verses that we looked at three weeks ago. And as we look at Romans 9, it is the beginning of three chapters. 9, 10, and 11. And basically it's Paul's attempt to tell us or to demonstrate to us what it was to be a Jew. When I say Jew, I mean ethnically and I also mean spiritually because Paul is going to take that up as he does even this morning. But it was basically his attempt to, to look at what God does to his chosen people or, and for his chosen people. He differentiates and distinguishes the ethnic Jew and the spiritual Jew. And then we're going to see in chapter 11 that he brings those two back together again. And we're going to see the culmination of chapter 11 that will be in a statement, thus all Israel is saved. But there's a whole lot that goes on before we get to that point. And it's a very difficult point to try to reconcile in our minds as we look at this. And as I said three weeks ago, chapter 9 will also explain to us God's sovereignty in salvation. And exactly how He goes about salvation for each individual purposes. Everything that we're going to see in 12, 13, and 14 which are beautiful chapters, I encourage you to read those this week. Go home, read chapters 12, 13, and 14. And you'll understand that we are providing the foundation and have been providing the foundation for 12, 13, and 14 in chapters 1 through 11. 
that this part of Paul's process and the way he goes about building up for 12, 13, and 14, which are application-oriented. They tell us how we are to live our lives as Christians. Verses, or chapters 1 through 11 have done so much to tell us who we are, what we are, what our proclivities are, and to demonstrate to us who God is. And when I say who we are, I mean who we are without Jesus. Okay, Who we are as a natural-born human being. What the extent of our depravity really is. Not what Christ in us makes us become or helps us or enables us to become. And it's so very important that we're able to view ourselves in that light because it's very difficult for us as Americans and all the blessings that God has bestowed on this country to not believe we deserve Every good thing that's out there, right? That's what we are, and don't get me wrong, I love this country. But we're a self-centered group of individuals. You're not going to tell us what to do, and we deserve everything that is great and wonderful. That runs antithetical to who we are as human beings and what God is to us. You see, that, that's why the health and wealth movement is so popular in America, because it, it goes along those lines. If you want to be rich, you want to be healthy, you want everything that your flesh desires, that's what you deserve, and that's what God wants for you, and that's what you're going to get. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's not reality. It's not the everyday life that we live in. And that's why true Christianity is hard in this country. Because we have this thing that I deserve it. It's what I deserve. And so whenever we can look at ourselves for who we truly are, and hopefully Paul has done a magnificent job of making the case of being able to tell us who and what we really are in the first eight chapters of this book. We can understand that we don't deserve anything but judgment. It's one thing to say that, and it's another to really let it soak in. I mean, I know folks that will tell you, I don't deserve what I have. But they're just giving lip service to that idea. They really believe in their hearts that they do. And it is so hard to separate this from this and and get in line with what the Bible tells us is true of ourselves. You all know it. When we, we cut through the fog, you know it because as you're out there moment by moment, you're thinking evil thought after another, right? You're thinking selfish thoughts. You're thinking about what can happen to help you or what you can do to make yourself look better. Or what the person next to you said to you that was out of line. 
That's just who we are. We don't deserve the grace and glory and everything that God gives us. And yet that is so hard for us to be able to shift into that that mindset and to truly understand that. You know, our rebellious nature, and rest assured it's there, our rebellious nature, regardless of how it manifests itself, is the direct result of our sinfulness. It's not because of God's faulty design. And I want you to understand that. It's not because God messed us up. You've heard the saying, God didn't make no junk, right? You've heard that. And while that's a true statement, it leads to some very dangerous thinking. And I'll tell you how. It's good to build up a young person's confidence. Okay, that's a good thing. But then we go too far sometimes to the point that they believe and we believe we deserve certain things. And we take our sinfulness and we don't take responsibility for it. We pin it on God. For example... If I have a desire to come and steal that phone that's sitting in the front row, I can very easily say, it's not really my fault, is it? After all, God don't make no junk. He made me. I have a desire to steal that phone in the front row. So if you want to blame anybody, blame God. He made me this way. That is wrong-headed thinking. That is dangerous thinking, and that is a lie that will lead you on a primrose path to hell. I am, I've said it many times, hardwired to a whole lot of sin. To lie and cheat and steal and everything that you can imagine, that's me. And whose fault is it? It's my fault. And either I was born that way or something in my upbringing caused me to have that inclination. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's because of sin. So we have to understand and have an idea of who we are in order to appreciate God's gift to us and all the blessings out there that he gives us that we don't deserve. Because sometimes we get so used to His grace that we take it for granted. Anna was saying this morning, wake up every morning thanking God that He's given me another day of life. How many days do we wake up just thinking, well, that's just another day of life? We don't appreciate the grace and everything that God's given us because we have this sinful idea or way of thinking in our hearts that somehow we're deserving of that and we're not we must always in our hearts be humble to understand that all we deserve is judgment and but for us getting anything else it is a gift from almighty god the next heartbeat that i have in my chest is a gift from god 
We should never allow ourselves to go grow cold in that respect. So as we go through Romans 9, 10, and 11, and they pave the way for 12, 13, and 14, let us do so with a mindset of undeserving humility. Undeserving humility. Verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Paul is going to list for us nine privileges or nine benefits of being an Israelite or being a Jew. And he is going to list those as part of being an ethnic Israelite. That you are a Jew by DNA, and he's going to tell us why there are benefits to that. But I'm going to spin it just a little bit, because we are partakers, those that believe, of these exact same benefits. Not because we deserve them, but because God so graciously gives them to us who believe, in spite of ourselves. So while he's going to illustrate what it means to be a Jew by DNA and what those benefits are, we also that believe are partakers of these same benefits, and it's very beautiful to see it. Before we get to that, I want to show you how that works, and we're going to jump over a couple chapters. We'll get to this in perhaps a few months. We're just going to go through it here. Verse 17, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Has anyone ever grafted a plant? You have? You have? It's a pretty amazing process, right? Did it work? Were you successful? It died. Was it successful? It was. I've never done it, but from everything that I read and see, it's an amazing process. You've got a tree that is grown, and you've got scion, a limb, okay, for lack of a better term. usually has a bud on it of some sort. You take and you cut the tree, and you place the scion or the other branch together. You tape it up. You keep it secure. And over time, it just becomes part of the tree. Interestingly enough, horticulturalists do this when they want to change the fruit that's being given or the fruit that the tree gives off. And they do this quite often to to change it in some some respect. So this is the, the metaphor that Paul's using here of an olive tree and the Gentiles being a wild olive shoot. And so you've got that tree that provides all the support, all the nourishment and everything to this wild shoot or wild branch being the Gentiles. So they cut off some of the natural branches on this olive tree. Why does God cut them off? Because the fruit that's being produced by that natural tree wasn't the fruit God wanted. And yet, amazingly, the fruit that's going to be produced is the fruit of this wild olive shoot that he's grafting in. It's us. It's the Gentiles. So 
those Jews that produced fruit, what is that fruit? It was self-righteous fruit of works. They believed that keeping the law, doing good things, would gain them eternal life. No, we're going to cut those off, throw them out. And that's what he did. He cut them off, threw them out, reached over, grabbed the Gentiles, grafted us in by faith. So now you've got a tree, and all the fruit that's going to be produced is fruit of faith in Jesus Christ. That's all of the fruit. So we have now become part of that original tree. And you can't take it apart. Now, he can cut us off again, and we're going to see that, that warning in, in chapter 11 that he tells us. He says, if you get too arrogant, Gentiles, if you get too arrogant, I'll cut you off, and I'll bring back the original group, and they're going to be regrafted in. But we are now part of the tree in the same way that the original Israelites, DNA, were part of the tree. We're being fed and nourished by Father Abraham the same way that Isaac and Jacob and all of those founding fathers were nourished. And we get our spiritual power from that same lineage. It's an amazing process. It's an amazing metaphor that he uses here with with this whole idea of grafting in a Gentile into this root or trunk of a natural tree. So let's jump back now to verse 4. So with that metaphor in mind, we can take all these privileges, which before only applied to Israelites, now apply to all of us because we have been grafted in to this beautiful tree. So we shall see in Romans 11 that there will also be a time whenever the natural or Ethnic Israelites will come back into this tree as well. The adoption. So that's the first benefit we see. They're all Israelites, and to them belong adoption. What does it mean? We know what being adopted is. Israelites were the first to be adopted as sons. Now, Jesus was the firstborn, the only begotten son, so it is the Israelites, it is us through the grafting process, that get this glory, joyful, unimaginable opportunity to be truly adopted as a son or daughter of God. To basically be co-heirs with who? With Christ. That's pretty amazing that there's going to be no legal distinction or no distinction between us and Jesus in the eyes of the Father as we move forward. Romans 8.15, we went over this. It says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So while we were once on the outside and we could not cry out, Abba, Father, it is through this grafting in process that now we have the same opportunity to cry out, Abba, Father, because He has adopted us. The glory. So, adoption and the glory. Now, I don't believe that this is glory looking backwards. I think this is glory looking forwards. And we just talked about glory in chapter 8 and what a beautiful um, 
passage that he has on our glory. 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy of being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So all the suffering that we deal with in this life, right now, cannot even be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us in the future. This is a glory that God is going to reveal to us that gives us everlasting joy. Everlasting joy. It's hard to understand this glory, is it not? I have a difficult time trying to understand. It's like trying to understand what heaven's going to be like. It's very tough. I have a very difficult time trying to understand what this actual glory is going to look at, look like. All we can do is, is look out at the glory of God now. And we can see the glory of God now, we, especially this time of year, or I find especially this time of year, when life is blooming all around us. We can see the glory of God in, in the children that are among us and, and just things that happen. But what you have to understand is every piece or every little tidbit of God's glory that we see is obfuscated by sin. So we see an image that doesn't even come close to revealing the full glory of God. It's like fog. Or haze. Remember, they used to have smog in those big cities, and you could see those tall buildings downtown, but it was obfuscated and dim, and you just couldn't get the true picture. That's how we look at God's glory today. We see it, and yeah, it's beautiful, but it is nothing compared to what it's going to look like when we get that fog removed, when that sin is gone, that haze no longer exists, and we can see it for truly what it is. That's the glory of God that's going to be revealed to us. So while I can't imagine it, all I can do is say, God, I see the beauty that you've created right now, and I know how foggy it is. So, oh my. I can't wait to be able to see what you have in store for us when that fog is removed. I can't wait to be able to see glory without any sort of haze in front of it. That's the glory that he's talking about. That's the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That was the glory that was there for the Israelites. That's the glory that we've got waiting for us because we have been grafted in to this tree when Simeon saw young Jesus in the temple in Luke 2 32 he said a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel so glory another benefit the covenants and the promises and I'm going to Take them a little bit out of order and add the two together, the covenants and the promises, because they're sort of the the same thing. All these covenants and promises we see in the Old Testament were given basically to the Israelites, right? To the ethnic group DNA Jews. And that's what Paul is saying here. These were given to my brother, my kinsman. But I want you to know they're ours. They're ours. We've been grafted into that, and those covenants, those covenants and those promises belong to us ever bit as much as they belong to the original Israelites. They are ours. They are ours 
through faith, through the grafting process. So as we go through and we look and we read and we talk about all those covenants, they're covenants that come by faith, not necessarily by blood. The law. The giving of the law. The giving of the law was definitely given to the original Jews. It was given to the nation of Israel. However, the, law, the goal of the law was given to everyone. It was given to you and me to be able to understand. It was to point us in a direction to say, hey, you're really not that good of a person. You really can't keep these Ten Commandments. You really need to find somebody that can. And who is that somebody? It's Jesus. So while that law was originally given to a a group of people, it was given to us spiritually through this grafting grafting process that, that God has done. It was created to point us to the perfecter and finisher of our faith. The worship or temple service, the New American Standard translates it temple service. The trunk and the root of the tree give us this worship. Worship in the Old Testament consisted of going to the temple and praying, but it also consisted of a lot of sacrifices. A lot of animals died because of the sacrificial system that was in the Old Testament. And so this temple service, this worship, consisted of making sacrifices. And we've been brought in through the grafting process, and it is Jesus who fulfilled that service. And so we have that benefit. We've been given that wonderful, perfect sacrifice as believers in the same way that the original Israelites were given worship or temple service. Jesus once and for all made the ultimate sacrifice for all of our our sins. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul speaks here about the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith. All the faith-filled fathers came from the ethnic Israelites or from the ethnic Jews. In addition, he tells us the very Savior of the world came by way of that DNA source or that bloodline. Now, Paul has gone to great lengths here to try to explain to the Romans, I'm just not going to kick the Jews out. There were a lot of benefits that they had that we now have through being grafted in. And he's done this once before. This isn't the first time that that he's done this. He did this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. He asked the question, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, and he goes on and on. And so it is his attempt not just to say, I'm going to throw my fellow brothers and sisters in the flesh under the bus, that I'm just going to forget about them. We see how much he loves them. 
Three weeks ago, we saw that he actually said he wished himself accursed for their salvation. If they would come to faith and repentance, then he would trade places with them. But he knows that's not possible. That's not God's economy. That's not how God does things. Salvation is on an individual level. And you can't trade your salvation for that of an unbeliever. But Paul goes through and demonstrates here for us what advantages that there was and continues to be of being a Jew. You know, in some ways, these advantages of being a Jew can be analogized to the advantages of being a small child growing up in church, can't they? The covenants, the promises. You grow up in church, you have the, so many benefits. You know and understand what true, hopefully, true unconditional love is. You know and understand how much God loves you. You got a great deal of insight that somebody that grows up on the outside of the church doesn't have. And so that, that demonstrates to us that growing up in a church has beautiful, wonderful advantages. In the same way that growing up as a Jew had beautiful and wonderful advantages. But those advantages don't save you. They may give you a better opportunity, but they don't save you. It is that personal faith that saves you. As a matter of fact, you need to be careful on your rejection of God whenever you either grow up in a church or come to church every Sunday and let it kind of go in one ear and the other. Because with those benefits come responsibilities. Luke twelve forty eight. It says, But the one who did not know and did not and did what deserved a beating. So the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. But everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. To whom much is given, much is required. So we've got the Jews and we've got the Chaldeans. Who do you think is going to suffer more at the rejection of God, the Chaldeans or the Jews? The Jews. They were entrusted with everything. They had communication with God. They were taught about God. They, they knew everything, supposed to have known everything about God. The Chaldeans were godless. Now, they're still going to be punished. But God helped the unbelieving Jews. What about the person that lives their entire life in a tribe in Africa and never hears the gospel as opposed to someone who is raised in church, goes to church out of a sense of obligation their entire life and never truly accepts Christ. Who's going to suffer more? The latter. They're both going to go. They're both doomed. But it is the one that spent their entire life in God's house rejecting Jesus every single day that will suffer greater than the one who never heard the gospel. So we see all of these advantages and benefits. And these advantages and benefits, they only come or they're only activated upon belief. And they only become real in us whenever we believe or whenever we're given that faith. 
And it's those beautiful benefits that we can embrace as believers. And they become near and dear to our hearts. But if you don't believe, they're not yours. You can't claim Abraham as your father. You can't be in the same lineage as Christ. You're not in and receive the benefits of the root of that olive tree that is God's tree. You're not in it. You're still cut off. You're still out here on the edge dying as a wasted wild olive shoot. That future glory that I described to you, it's not yours to take. Instead, suffer along with those that don't believe. So let's all ask ourselves to make sure we know that we're in that tree, that we've been grafted in, that it is the very power of God that is causing us to grow fruit and that fruit that comes from faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for these wonderful passages that you've given us to to help us understand and, and to help explain to us what it was to be a Jew and that we've been grafted in and we have the same heritage that we can call Abraham our father. But more importantly, and most importantly, that we can call you our Father through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, it's my prayer that if there's someone out there that's not in that tree, that has not been grafted into that beautiful olive tree that you've created, that they come to know you in that special way and that they can be your child and you can be their God. May all that has been said here this morning glorify you. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. All rise. May the grace and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all. Have a blessed week and stay safe. Amen.